and you are very welcome to episode 187 of the Game Pit Podcast. This is Ronan, your host. This is I Am, words. And the episode is a battle report from Essen, from Spiel 2022. And for the next little while, I am going to give you a few quick general thoughts about the show itself. It's my return. I haven't been since 2019. And just what I've those differences and similarities and stuff I can see if you were there maybe reminisce if you weren't maybe you can get a feed of it either way and then I'm going to talk about seven of the games that were released in or around the show that I've managed to play and the reason this isn't a picking over the bones is because I haven't played them loads so it's going to be from one or two plays first impressions really and naturally this is coming out not long after the show they're going to be kind of lighter games there's a Maybe like mediums in there. So you're not going to get the real proper reviews until we start doing picking over the bones. Now, whether that's going to be in two weeks or four weeks, I'm not too sure. I'm rushing trying to get some of the heavier games played. But obviously, going from that standing start, usually we're sort of playing ahead of ourselves to get into our reviews so that we have a depth of play. And uh, going from the standard start of Spiel with no plays or anything, it takes a while to get going and rolling and then, okay, I have enough of these. So enough of that nonsense anyway. You're going to get some heavier full reviews. For this one, just a quick light to go over. I said I'd be quicker in this episode and I'm, I'm rambling already, so be quiet, Ronan. Let's talk about what the show was like for Sean and I. Well, firstly, you can maybe still slightly hear in my voice and you'd have heard if you listened to any of the pre-show shows. Words are very difficult today. That I wasn't feeling that great and uh, still lingering on. So we were not bursting with energy because Sean wasn't feeling well either. He had a head cold. So we were kind of in and out just a couple of hours each day at the show itself. And it was enough to do the shopping we wanted to do, to fulfil our expectations going in. But we missed out really on the chance of going around and pottering and getting demos of those games that were maybes, that you're like, oh, I'm not sure, but if I try it, and sometimes they just blow your mind, and sometimes there's a game that you've never played before, and someone just grabs you, and you're walking along, you're like, yeah, I'm not doing anything other than just mooching around, and you play it, wow, 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 maybe not even a new game, Rumble Nation, oh, there you go, is my trademark, <laughs> mentioned Rumble Nation, which, by the way, sold out quite quickly at the show, I mean, I'm not claiming 100% credit, but, you know, maybe 80%, but Romination was one that I learned. It was it was really old, and someone just grabbed me, and I was walking past. It was with Rachel, actually, and we were like, okay, sure. Why not give it a go? Loved it. These things are what we missed out on by just being very focused this time around and going to get the games we wanted from beforehand. And it wasn't really until Sunday when we spent a couple of hours mooching around. We might have picked up a bargain here and there. But I'll try and put some sort of time loop onto this. What was Thursday like? Which is when we got there, just after it had opened. We arrived at Hall 3, and I think if you've heard anything else about Spiel this year, Hall 3 was the busiest hall. I'll get into why there's reasons for that. Now, it was definitely, definitely the busiest time of the whole fair was Thursday morning. It felt like a fair in which people said, these are the games that I want to get, and I am rushing to get them. More even than any other Essen I've been to, been going since 2010, not all of them, but since 2010. I've never seen it so much where... The crowds were focused at certain positions and certain games were really, really hot. And the first thing I went to do was pick up a copy of Revive, which is one of the games that sold out quickly. So luckily I did go and get it early. And man, I was just standing in this queue, just waiting. Just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And I thought, maybe I won't. And I looked at the next hot booth I could see and Devere were just down the way. 
massive queue. People just waited. So there were certain hotspots, and then you'd look across at other booths, and there wouldn't be so many people there. It was interesting how much people coalesced in certain spaces. So certain games were hot, certain games had supply issues, and there were games that sold out. There was a pilot strike which affected flights, certainly at least from the UK, on the Thursday. I know that some people were pushed back to Friday. I was lucky enough to rebook with a different airline, so I did get in on Thursday or my flight was cancelled, but it was all good. But even by arriving on Friday, some games had sold out already. But forget that. Even if you didn't go to them initially, if you didn't make them one of your first one, two or three games you picked up, because of these hotspots, because of the time you'd spend in a queue, it probably took me 25 minutes to get that copy revived, you were going to miss out on things. That's how quickly certain games sold out. And it was unusual because usually I'd say there's no need to run. There's plenty of copies. Slightly different this time, a different feel to it. Things that ran out anyway. Cat in the Box that Sean wanted to get hold of that we talked about in preview was gone within no time whatsoever. First hour. Revive was gone pretty quickly. And there were loads of copies of that. I saw them when I got there. Gone by the next day. Lacrimosa was gone. Red Cathedral Contractors. Now, I stood in that queue for Revive, and then I was like, I can't stand another 25-minute queue. So I avoided the Devere booth, went and got a couple few more things, and came back a bit later. Contractors was gone. And on they, I said to them, is there no chance of any more deliveries? Because sometimes people will be getting deliveries while the show goes on, or they'll arrive on the Saturday stuff, and they said no. But come back Sunday, some of the pre-orders might not have been picked up. I was like, okay, so Sunday I didn't rush or anything. I wandered in. And I went up to Deville. I said, I don't suppose there are any. And the lady was like, no, it's all sold out. I said, oh, no, that's cool. I expected that. And then the lady behind her turned around and said, actually, I've just seen one at the back of a cupboard and I'm not sure why it's there. So you can have that one if you want. <laughs> and I happened to get a coffee. I don't know. I got lucky. So it's always worth going up and being polite and asking and just saying, I don't know. You never know. Um, what else sold out? I told you I'd be rambling. I'm going to ramble today. I'm sorry. I, I pretended I was going to be concise. I just won't be. We should move on from that. Attila apparently sold out in English, loads and loads of German copies. And obviously you can get the English rules. And I believe it's language independent. One of the things that was said to me was, yeah, but you can't trade it in the UK. And game trading has been such a thing or, or moving it on or even selling it. You know, a lot of the time we're getting these games and we'll play them as long as we want to. And then we're going to move them on. And that secondhand market is so important. It's something people now consider. Okay. Uh, Wolves. I really want to get hold of Wolves and... I think they didn't have many copies at the Pandasaurus. They released a few each day, but they were gone super, super hot. London Acropolis Railway sold out for sure. Sean managed to get a copy. Pilgrim never turned up at Spielwerks. It was still stuck in customs. I do wonder what the publishers do when all their games are stuck in customs. Now, Spielwerks is a German company, so you're like, okay, it will get delivered eventually to somewhere in Germany. Let's say I was a company from anywhere else in the world and I've shipped things to Hamburg and they're stuck in customs and then they get through customs do I have to pay to get them shipped back to me again are, are there distributors over in Germany that will send them out I don't yeah it can be really crippling I'm sure to have your game stuck for a big show that must be very frustrating for everyone involved anyway Hans in Gluck Hans in Gluck are a big company in Germany and that's very much the focus of their booth, of their marketing. You won't get much information in English, but they did have English copies. They always have English copies and English rules for their games. So if ever you look on the Spiel preview and you see a game you're interested in, it says German only, but it's a hands in look, they will almost certainly have English copies or English rules for you. So it's worth trying. I did it with Council of Shadows as well. It wasn't advertised in English, but if you ask, they'll give you a fully printed English copy. A game I'm going to talk about later, Oricalcum. Only out in French, allegedly, but 
if you ask them, they'll give you a fully printed English copy of rules, like professionally, and there's no language dependency. So it's always worth kind of digging in if you've got the time a little bit deeper. Anyway, about Hanton Gluck, Miss Over Carcassonne. The Cooperative Carcassonne game was out, and that sold out quickly. Great Western Trail Argentina, gone. A bit later on the show, Sabika sold out. Heavy Euro people are very interested in. Clearly, my insight into the board game industry is absolutely spot on after my ranting about looping games and their game box size and why they put all their games in that size. They did have Cotton Club, if anyone was following along. I got a copy of that. That's grand. They had lots of copies. They sold out of everything apart from their two sort of more war-based, more themed, like Yorktown and whatever the other one is. But they sold out of everything. They sold out of the new one. I says they sold out of Cotton Club, sold out of everything. I'm an idiot. Good. Resist was crowdfunded. And I backed it on crowdfunding and it got delivered just before the fair. That was really hot at the show. Lots of people were talking about it. You see people wearing lots of copies. That sold out. Things like Oak from Game Brewer. That sold out. But that actually leads me into something interesting. They were one of the companies that got games delivered as the show was going on. So they'd say, oh, you'll come back. We're, we're hoping for more, hoping for more. And they did get more delivered. And Sean managed to pick up the deluxe edition that he was after. The interesting part of that is and one of the things that I really noticed about the show, you could get deluxe and Kickstarter almost pledges at the Essence show, which for, well, it depends how it works out, but is to me was really interesting, something I hadn't considered and was really, really handy. Because some of those deluxe ones are so heavy and you look at them and, you, and the shipping ends up being $50 to the UK, $60 to the UK, and there's other parts of the world where it's more expensive. I fully understand that. And you're like... I, Well, to me, I'd say I can't spend that much money on shipping for a game that may or may not turn up in the shops, or I can just get the retail edition when it turns up and I can live without the fancy components. Again, that's my choice. What was kind of cool, for me anyway, at the show was you could get the deluxe editions. So stuff like uh, Endless Winter, Paleo Americans, that was there. You could get the full blinged up, and that sold out. You can get the full blinged up edition of it without having backed I did pick up the Ultimate Edition of Captain Nemo, which I never backed it. I don't know what the shipping was. I'm guessing that's what stopped me from doing it. It was there. Now, yeah, you've got to work out how to get these games home, but so handy, like Oak, like I was saying with Sean. The Radlands Deluxe Editions were there. I just wanted some player mats. I didn't want to spend €70 to get a version of the game I already have. I just wanted to buy some player mats, but they don't sell them separately. Radlands, uh, Roxley, do that for me. And the other flip side of that is, as well as there being crowdfunded games that you may have missed out on or they're hot now all of a sudden or you missed out because it's hard to tell which campaigns are going to be hot it really is when when they're going you're like I don't sometimes I just give up and go I'll wait and see if this gets buzz there were games there that have got buzz that have now been in people's hands being careful of the crowdfunded bounce and I'm interested in them and I've, I really found it good and also the other side is you can demo upcoming Kickstarter games now I know people have different opinions on this. I know the Dice Tower crew were really like, oh, I'm not interested. Yeah, but they're going to get a copy of everything anyway. So there's no worry about that. Then. You see, you're sitting in a slightly different uh, uh, table there. Whereas for us mortals, who have to buy our games for the very most part. It was kind of cool. If there had been a Kickstarter coming out, then if I had more time, there might have been a few more of them that I might have tried. To go on from that whole sort of crowdfunding thing, the nature off the booths has changed a bit over the years when i first started going it was very much a board game and comic convention and there was a whole more more or less a small hall that was all comic books and sort of collected things to do with comic books that's completely disappeared over the years 
There was also a whole hall. Um, sorry, we used to call it the smelly hall because it smelled of leather and tannin or whatever it smelled of. That was all to cosplay and LARPing and like heavy leather armors and, and fake weapons and makeup and masks and helmets and stuff. It was really cool to walk around. It was a bit stinky. That is very much reduced. You'll still get a couple of uh, orcs walking around the place looking cool, but that whole footprint has reduced. And you think maybe then it's just becoming sort of a, a mono thing of just board game after board game after board game. But what I found was that there's more board game related booths coming in. Board game tables. There were loads of them all over the place. I don't know who's, I don't think anyone's carrying a board game table home from there, but you can put your rulers in. I think there's there's like a you know, con deals for a board game table. There was inserts. So if you're looking for particular inserts, especially is it folded space, the one that do the foamy ones, they were there with like everything, their whole range. So you could just spend loads of money on them if you wanted to. And the crowdfunding, the big crowdfunders, GameFound and Kickstarter, they had booths there. Because the thing about Essen is that it's it's a trade fair. It's a massive shop as far as we are concerned. Walking around the place, it's not like a convention. It's not like a Gen Con. It's not like a, a World Con you might go to, whatever convention you go to where there are activities, there are talks, there are shows, there are things organised for you to do and go along and fill your time with. That's not done. This is just for us a big shop or in some places a demo area where publishers will teach you their games or show you their games. It's very different to a normal convention. So it's, it's not a convention, it's a trade fair. But the flip side of that, obviously, as outside of the whole industry, is that it is a massive networking opportunity, a global networking opportunity. And there are business centres all over the place. And that's where other people are meeting up. And of course, it made sense from that point of view that Kickstarter and GameFound would be there because they're talking to people, trying to get them on board, trying to sign them up, trying to show them what they can do for them. There was loads of board game manufacturers there. So you'd walk along and there'd be this list of games. Like, and you'd be like, are these like the certain language edition? Have these been localised? That's why all these games are together from disparate publishers. No, we make them. You're like, oh, okay, cool. And like the people who make baggies, the people who make the meeples. And there's all sorts of board game adjacent booths that have sprung up over the years that to me speaks of a sort of a burgeoning industry whereby the games are now driving secondary functions around them and stuff like that. And you can almost see the evolution of the board game industry over the years going to Essen and seeing how it changes and how it's become much more the primary focus rather than one of a few different geeky things that you might find there. So it was cool to walk around the place, look at all these different things and take these things in. After a three-year absence, it certainly was anyway, sort of reminding myself how exciting it is to go. I, I love going to Weston, I really do. One of the things that we did for two of our three days there, we, we tried a third time, but they said they didn't need us. I don't know. <laughs> I think they were trying to be nice. Well, they just hate us. It's one of the two. Well, the Dice Tower booth. So we got to meet Borg, the nicest man in the world, and Chris and Camilla from Dice Tower. We'd never met them before. They've come in the last three years to see Z and Tom and Mike and Corey and Dave and Ilka and Uli to see them all again. It's lovely. It's lovely to reconnect and say hello. We don't see them much, and we just chat for a couple of hours at conventions we see them. But it's just nice to say hello. It's nice to be on the booth, to have people coming up and chatting to you and to sort of spend a bit of time still and let the movement of the whole fair go on around you. Because sometimes you're so busy walking around and hustling and bustling and your eyes are fixed on games here, there and everywhere. As people say, you might walk along one of these corridors or one of these lanes 
and never notice booth on one side because your eye keeps getting drawn to the other side and you miss so much by hustling around the place and being busy that to stand still for a couple of hours each day, look, chat, have somewhere where your friends will know you're going to be there at a certain time. They'll come up and say hello and you can say, oh, how are you doing? What have you got? Have you played? How's it going? I'm fed up. I hate Essen. I love Essen. This is the best ever. This is the worst ever. But have got all sorts of different opinions. <laughs> it's just great. So it's a lovely thing that we do, and uh, I very much enjoyed it. It's lovely to have a home base as well where you can put a bag down. That's that's really, really handy. Or sit down, also important, because we didn't do any demo in, so we weren't sitting down at any point. We are walking around all day, many tens of thousands of steps on the stepometer there. So it was cool being on the Dash Tower booth. Let's go to Friday. Friday, I didn't notice any of those cues from Thursday and those real hot spots and people desperate to get certain things. You feel like a lot of the purchasing that was, you know, people filled up two or three cars of games was done by the Thursday. The other thing I noticed was that there was much more of a spread of publishers of interest, if you like, or publishers that have got a bit of a name to them. So in Essen, the most expensive halls to have your booth are halls one, two, and three. They're seen as like the main halls. Asmodee is, is a large part of Hall 1, and for the Germans, you've got Ravensburger, Amigo, Haber, Queen. You've got... Check Games Edition in there. Uh, you got sort of big name publishers, Hans and Glucker in Hall 2. They're all in Hall 1, 2, and 3, and they always have been. And then when you go again to 4, it was sort of up-and-comers, and then 5 and 6 will start becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. What I've seen now is that some publishers have decided that, all right, we're not the big ones. We're not doing the big deals. We don't have to prove that we're the, the fat cats of the industry, we're happy being in Hall 4, 5 or 6. We're happy sitting back there and having our booth and telling people this is where we are, and people will come. And they did. And some of the games in Hall 5 and 6 were selling out just as quickly as they were in 1, 2 and 3. And it dispersed the crowd as well, and it dispersed the sort of hectic feel you sometimes get in some of the halls. Now, part of that is they released the numbers of attendees. It's 30% down from 2019 to 2022 understandable we live in a different world but it actually gave it kind of a cooler feeling much more relaxed feeling now it's not relaxed it's loud and it's busy and there's lots of people rushing around but compared to previous years i felt it was more relaxed more evened out and that was quite an interesting like like cranio have always had a booth in hall one right by the, the main door into hall one and then a smaller booth in hall five well they just ditched the hall one booth this time so we went, would you go to hall five because people will come to us like i say and they did. They had like a barrage expansion getting delivered. They had uh, my shelfie. They had, I don't know, loads of stuff Cranio had. I was talking about them beforehand, wasn't I? The Great Split things. Evergreen. Mm. They keep coming to me. I'll shut up. So Friday, we wandered around, tried to do a nice booth. I grabbed a few bits of bulbs and went for a beer. Saturday, we just didn't go. Yeah, there was a huge family presence at Essen. And on Saturday, that really peaked. But also the people obviously who are working in the week, if they're going to spend, anyone is going to spend one day at Essen, it tends to be the Saturday and it tends to get much busier. Now, I've been there where it would literally take you 20, 25 minutes to get through just walking through one hall because it's just a log jam constantly. I was told Saturday was not like that. It wasn't as, as crazy as previous years, but it's still much more difficult to look at things, get a demo, get things bought, hear yourself think. So Saturday, if I'm going to miss a day, that'll be the day to miss. And like I say, we're both feeling rough. So we just took a day mostly in bed, to be honest with you, played a couple of games, but just chilled out. Back to Sunday. Sunday was the most chilled and empty 
that I have ever seen Essen. We got there more or less as it opened and we were wandering around and we were wandering past empty demo tables. You just sit down and play. Not everything. There was still a few hot things. CG was hot. Hamlet was hot on constantly. I'm trying to think why the ones we're getting demoed there. Hard to remember. But it was much more relaxed. And this would be the day where you could find hidden gems if they hadn't sold out. The flip side of that is you'll get booths always doing like fair specials, right? On Sunday, if they haven't sold as well as they hoped, you will sometimes get reduced prices. As the day goes on, you're more likely to get reduced prices where suddenly there's a, a Sharpie through the printed poster and it's like, now this is now this price. And it could be cool. And something for me that I never went looking for, and I happened to stop by and I looked at Hamlet, as I just mentioned, but they were sold out of Hamlet by that point. But they had Excavation Earth and expansion and coins and a few extras and promos and stuff. And it was a 90 euro deal. And I haven't really thought about it. And it was down 75 euro on the Sunday. And I was like, yeah, that's a good deal. I'll grab one of them. And Sunday's a really cool day for stuff like that, for discovering the other side of Essen and not the bit that you've all been het up about why you've been preparing for a month to go there and see what's there. So we came back Sunday evening and then hard work started of trying to learn all the rules and punch it out and learn how to play the games we've been so excited about. And like I say, we have been able to play, or I've been able to play at least uh, about half a dozen of them, one or two players in so far, just not ready to review. But I am going to give you, I've called this, Sean's going to love this, he's not going to tell me at all, licking over the bones. I'm just going to give these seven games a quick lick. No scores, just some quick thoughts. First up was one of the super hot games of the show, Permanently being demoed, lots of people talking about it, lots of people had it. We talked about it beforehand. It's Starship Captains from CGE and Peter Hofgaard, one to four player, 75 minutes. It's the sci fi action selection game in which you are running the Starship Enterprise, trademarked, but not Starship Enterprise, but you get it. And you are attempting to fulfill missions on a shared board by sort of managing your own little ship and choosing actions and scoring the most points by the end of four rounds. You have a pool of yellow, red and blue workers as well as some grey ones. They all perform specific roles. The red ones will let you move to planets and reserve missions, which basically are cars you can pick up and say, I'm doing this. Uh, They'll give you points and they'll give you all sorts of goodies that you can put on your ship and, and set you up for extra actions and set you up for a few points. You've got yellow They will shoot at pirates because as you move around with the red, if you move through pirates, they'll shoot you and cause you damage. Damage goes into your hold area and also goes into sort of your tech area. You can uniquely spec out your ship by collecting these uh, tech cards, but you start with a limited amount of space for them. And by repairing, you can make space for these upgrades, but when you get damage, it goes in, it goes in the hold. So you can carry fewer artifacts, and artifacts will score you points some ways, but also you can put them together for those extra actions. And for in terms of those blue upgrade cards and making your ship your own, the blue workers are what's best at that. But the upgrade cards that you get may allow your yellow, red, and blue workers to do different things. You get different action spaces, or they'll bend the rules another way, let you score points in a certain way, or make you better at this or better at that, whatever it might be. You also get these grey workers, which you can always uh, promote to one of the colours by using medals that you're going to get as a reward for various things. You can promote a a worker that has a colour to it to a commander, which makes it twice as efficient whenever it does anything. And repairing damage, anyone can repair damage, including the greys. There are three different tracks which you can go up by doing various things, completing missions and stuff. They'll give you bonuses to also get your engine going and give you victory points. 
when you complete the missions, you just say, I'm assigning these workers to this mission that I've really, I'm sitting on with my ship. And if the workers are certain colours, you'll get bonuses. You can get androids like as mission bonuses and via tech cards and stuff. And the androids all always work for you, although some missions want androids. Whenever you choose an action with a worker, it slots into the back of your crew queue and, and they'll just keep adding on to the back on the back. And at the beginning of the next round, you'll take all but three out of that queue. So you are trying to time it like you don't want all your blue stuck at the back of your queue so you don't get the next round. Or maybe you do want it. You've got some clever plan. I don't because I'm not smart enough to do that. As you're going through and taking missions, the pirates will reset and, and block certain paths. There's, there's three paths that are very planet on the board as you're going around the place. You'll get a few extra workers over rounds. It's all beautifully made it's really nice physical game to play i think the board the shared board is a bit busy and the wrong things are highlighted so like the planets which are just card holders are really sort of bold but the paths that you actually want to see that you go down and see where they link to are very faded and i think the other way around would have been nice i don't know if it had good that would look to the eye i'm in no way a graphic designer but in terms of functionality just a little thing especially in worse light we're playing in quite a good light I would have struggled with that. The interaction you've got, which is one of the concerns we had beforehand, is in drafting tech cards before other players, in shooting pirates before other players can get to them, and in reserving missions before other players. And that all feels very sort of gentle and kind of incidental, to be honest. I'm not interacting that much with the players around me. I'm not too concerned what they're doing. I'm not really looking at what missions they're going for or looking at their worker pool because their workers are all... They're taking actions on their own ships. There's no shared board where we go and take actions. And the actions don't get blocked. They just take the action and go back to the queue. So there's no limit of actions in that way. It's yourself managing your own colours. And it's managing that colour that's the real heart of the puzzle. And it's a really good puzzle. And managing what text you get to change what you do and trying to sort of combo those together because certain texts can almost block each other out and it becomes less efficient in using them. And that's quite nice. You imagine what missions come out and who you have available to do them so you can jump on these bonuses and move up the tracks. You look into time promotions. That can be quite interesting because you collect these medals and it costs you medals to promote things. And sometimes just getting the right commander at the right time to, for an opportunity that opens up because the missions and the products will refresh at a certain point and it's not at the end of a round. So sometimes you want to hold back and wait for the new missions. You go, oh, cool, cool, cool. There we go. These are the ones that I was after. That, that is all part of a nice puzzle that you're trying to work out. Does it feel thematic? No. Do I feel like I'm running a spaceship? Not at all. Could it have been 100 other themes? Of course it could. The fact is this theme really worked because it grabbed people and people are enjoying it and people were up for it. So therefore the choice of theme was a good choice because it fulfilled one part of what your theme is to get interest for the game. In terms of being thematic, I don't think they were too worried about that, to be honest with you. The one thing I didn't enjoy is that space is limited on your ship. And there are spaces where you put in the artifacts you gather, which are half a point each, or you combine two of the same colour to take an extra action. You put damage in there when you take it, which you generally have to take when you encounter pirates, whether you shoot them or not. And also where you put pirate bounties when you've shot them. And they're worth a point at the end of the game. You only get seven spaces. Encountering a pirate will give you a damage, it will give you the pirate bounty, and will mostly, although some give you androids, will give you an artifact. That's almost half of your entire hold space from one interaction. 
So, okay, I can heal that damage. If I encounter another pirate, suddenly now I've got five out of seven spaces taken out of the blue. And I found that I was throwing stuff away or I was using artifacts possibly when I didn't really want to, which might sound all right, but I was just talking about the timing of the actions is quite important. And when you're doing things to do this before that, to do that, to upgrade that, to get there, that puzzle, suddenly I was kind of shonking it and going, well, I've just got to get rid of these artifacts because they're just in the way. And I didn't feel like it should be like that. And I especially hated that pirate tokens were the only, there's a few things in the game that give you a point at the end, like keeping medals or having androids and pirate tokens will give you them. And you just got to throw them away sometimes. And that really irritated me. I'm like, why am I throwing pirate tokens away? I said, either they should be stored somewhere else or there should be a mechanism in the game whereby I visit somewhere and I hand the pirate tokens in and I get my points. But having to just throw points away in a kind of dryish euro, were you not scoring a load of points? Yeah, that, that definitely wasn't great on that. It meant that some of the tech you take to make your yellow better, you're dealing with pirates better. Because pirates are, are a constant thing in the game. They're not incidental. They're constantly coming out. They're constantly blocking parts. It's just not worth it. And it just, that, that was the worst design bit. I don't want to go on too much about it. Because to be honest, I want to play Starship Captains again. I really enjoyed the puzzle. I had a very good first impression with it. I was engrossed in what I was doing. It didn't last too long. I didn't really care what was going on with anyone else. My question remains how long that will keep me engrossed, how many games that will keep me engrossed for, or is it a game to pull out once a year or once every six months and play it and go, okay, I've, because what did I not experience in the game? I could set my ship up slightly differently, but I feel like it would become repetitive because of that lack of player interaction. But there you go. That's my thoughts. I don't want to finish on negative. Go and play Starship Captains if you've got any interest in light, medium euros. It's a very fine puzzle. It will get you ticking over. Actions are very quick. It just goes round and round and round and round. And you are doing your own thing. If you like doing your own thing in a euro, I think you'll love Starship Captains. I've got to end on that. Go and play it. It's really worth a try. One of the games I was really, really excited about before Essen was Kites. Two to six players, 10 minutes, Floodgate Games, Kevin Amano. This is the game of these that I've played the most. You probably won't be surprised. It's the one where there are six timers. Everyone gets a, a certain hand of colored cards. You play a card and that color timer flips over. And then the next player goes and plays it and the timer flips, the timer flips, the timer flips. And between you, you're continually playing one card at a time, draw, draw a card, one card, draw a card. And you're trying to make sure that none of the timers run out of sand after they've been flipped. It is about kind of communication. <laughs> it is a bit hectic it's funny it keeps going and going and going it's very very quick I, like i say i've played it several times and it has had mixed reviews from absolute genius was said to me to the worst game you've ever made me play from my daughter okay i think it you're gonna love it or you're gonna hate it i love it it's what I thought it would be. What I need to do is find a bunch of equally enthusiastic players to play it with so we can do some shouting and screaming and get some of those blocky cards in that make it harder and we can really have a good time with it and really go for kites. What I really think was interesting was the rolling cons because while I'm playing a card, I'm not necessarily announcing what I'm doing, although I am because the people in front of me have to, but I'm also talking about what needs doing. And that's almost more what I'm thinking about because as it's coming round, let's say I have the purple card in my hand and that is low. I know purple's dealt with. So then my focus shifts to timers that I'm not playing on. 
And that's what I'm talking about. And I just, I thought that was quite interesting because I'm not sitting there going, purple needs slipping, purple needs slipping because I've got a purple in my hand. I don't need to say that. So I'll be there going, orange and light blue, orange and light blue, play my purple, boom. But someone might say, but purple, I say, I've got purple. And then they can start thinking about the other ones that have been rolled along to them. And they'll go, okay, orange and light blue. Or look for themselves and go, yellow, yellow. I've got yellow, orange, light blue needs doing. But you're kind of talking ahead of your turn. It's not necessarily your goal when you're saying that, but you're constantly listening to your right and passing on to your left, but it's rolling around. Yeah, some people are going to hate the idea of that. I found it really interesting. I loved kites. So uh, it's a high rating from me, but not universally. Right, one of the games that arrived prior to the show, but was certainly a big presence at the show, was Rachel did her first ever crowdfunding game. It's Flamecraft. One to five players, 60 minutes from Cowboard Alchemy, designed by Manny Vega. It's a charming lovely well-produced little game about collecting goods from shops in the town by moving your dragon around to little dragony shops and when you go to different shops you collect resources and when you have resources you can go to a shop and work an enchantment on it it's basically a menu game where you hand in a certain amount of resources and that shop now becomes more powerful but you'll score a certain amount of points and every time you take an action actually shops will become more powerful because when you move your worker to there you're either going to collect the goods that's available both from the shop and then other dragons that have been placed there by previous players, and you're going to add a dragon to it to boost it up, or you're going to do that thing where you're handing goods, enchanting it, and you can activate all the dragons there. If you're on a, a normal turn where you're collecting goods, you activate one dragon power from the up to three available. When you enchant a shop, you get to do all the dragon powers, which will let you move dragons around or collect more goods or draw some cards or whatever it might be. You're looking to score points by doing enchantments. You can also collect in-game scoring for yourself. And also some of the powers on the shop, like when you put a dragon into it, it might score you points. Or when you activate certain things, like if you're at the shop and you activate the shop's power because you start with shops that don't have powers on them, but as the game goes on, you draft more into it and fill up the town. Some of the shops have powers that let you score points. So you're just looking around at various options. You're always going to have resources available to you, six resources, constantly going in and out of your possession. The workers don't block each other. You can always move in, but you have to pay people who are already there. These more powerful shots become available, more dragons go into place. The whole engine ramps up, and you constantly are making choices between, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. Which one do I want most? You're never feeling blocked out. It's never tight. It's never, oh, I'm not sure. There's a race sometimes to certain enchantments because there's only a certain number available and everyone can see what they are. And you're like, oh, you've got loads of diamonds. You're before me. You're likely to do that one. Okay, I should probably focus on this one. Then I collect potions and someone to the left of me goes, ah, right, you're going to beat me to that. I'll, I'll have to go for another one. Certainly in a multiplayer game, it feels like that, where people are constantly taking the enchantments that you want. And by the time it comes back around to you, because I said this whole thing of the game ramping up, like the first couple of turns you take, I'll have one or two of these and one or two of them and I'm not doing much. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, I'll have 12 of them and 14 of them and these enchantments are just whizzing in and out. Bam, 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 bam. And the game really ramps up really, really quickly. And it's very difficult to plan for anything or, or look ahead because the whole, between one, or one turn and the next turn, the whole thing will change situation. And dragons will have been moved around and placed and things were kicked out and new shop with a different power. And you're like, whoa. I found it ramping up too quickly and overwhelming playing with four or five players. When we took it down and played with two players, I found it much, much more reasonable. I was making proper decisions. I was able to shape certain shops 
towards the way I wanted to go and looking towards things that I wanted to do rather than just watching everything go crazy flying around the board. I was able to plan for certain enchantments and plan ahead because there's only two of us taking them. I think it would, obviously it would be similar for three, but I wouldn't want to play more than three because I can see you can do that enchantment. I can do this one. Maybe I'll grab that one. And, and I'm, I, I am actually reading the game state rather than just being in this whirlwind of goods flying around the place. Now, the game's going to play until you run out of helper dragons or you run out of enchantments in the deck, and those decks are certain sizes according to number of players. And you can feel a gradual movement. I'd say the one thing in it is that there's no catch-up mechanism. So two or three players, if someone makes a really good start, it's hard for the other players to get. But it's a quick game, and turns are really quick, and it looks lovely, and it is charming. So there's plenty to like here for three or fewer. And I think that at the end of the day, Flamecraft is going to stick around for us as almost a relaxing race game between Rachel and I, where we are racing for points and someone who gets ahead is likely to stay ahead, but it's all done in a really well-produced and nice way. It's a nice game. It's just, it's nice to play with. It's fun. That's why it doesn't need the hectic feeling of more players. The feeling I have is of chilling out and taking some stuff and playing a bit ahead. Not, ah! this is crazy oh everything's souped up to max so there you go flamecraft don't play with too many players you'll ruin it for yourself okay sean and i in our compromised state played marvel remix two to six players 20 minutes long whiz kids designed by bruce glasgow this is simply the marvel re-theme of fantasy realms which is a game in which you're going to be drafting cards in and all the cards have got unique powers. And some cards want to be in your hand with other cards. And some cards trigger off certain symbols, because cards have symbols on them. And they all score points in various ways. And what you're trying to do is produce the most efficient synergy of powers of the seven cards in your hand by the end of the game in order to score most points. And everyone's going to be scoring points from all sorts of different things. And, and what a card that is useless to you will be incredibly useful to another player. And getting to know the deck helps. Now, we really like Fantasy Realms. Found it very enjoyable. Better than the concept itself would suggest. And Sean was sort of very careful to say to me, I'm not even going to tell you what it's like. Just play. Because you'll turn against it. And if what I'm saying to you there, you're going, oh, it's not really good. Well, Fantasy Realms is very good. It's whether they were able to bring that magic through to the Marvel reprint. And what's weird here, by the way, is that Fantasy Realms have got a two-player variant in which you build your whole hand because you it, the, the game will fly by otherwise and you have very little control because there's very few players sort of taking cards in and out of the available pool. It's not in the reprint rules. It's one of those weird whiz kid things where you know there's a two-player issue with this system. You've addressed it previously and then you reprint it with a different theme and then you ignore addressing the two-player issue. It's like, well, whiz kids, why are you so weird? Okay, things about the Marvel reprint. Very similar to Fancy Realms. The only thing is there are two decks. One of the decks is a villain deck, and the villains are kind of riskier to take. They will offer you ways of scoring points, but they all have a restriction as well. So drawing a villain might get you more points than drawing a hero. However, it might also screw your whole hand because it might say, yeah, minus four points for every Asgardian symbol you've got, and you've been building an Asgardian little hand, and you're like, oh, crap, so that villain's got to go. And then you'll take another one, and you're hoping that that will, that will match what you're trying to do. But that's the same with all the cards. It's just that the villains have slightly higher risk. In terms of do you need to get a Marvel Remix, or do you like Marvel? If you like Marvel, and you like the just the, any game having Marvel on it, then by all means, get it. I think Fantasy Realms itself was kind of lightning in the bottle. 
with the powers because it just always felt like there was something interesting or different going on. And your, your head seemed to be unraveling this kind of arcane puzzle each time you played. Look, it's not the heaviest game in the world. Don't get me wrong, it's 20 minutes long. Marvel didn't feel like the powers were quite as exciting. It felt like some of the combinations were much more obvious. Also felt that some combinations were really powerful. And quite often I was looking at it going, well, I'm throwing away a really good card for a really good card. Whereas in Fantasy Realms, you were more hanging on getting a card or and and possibly switching halfway through. Whereas in this one, I, I build up a synergy quite quickly and go, well, these four are, are going to be here. If I get something else that matches them, great. If not, or whatever, that, that's the basis of my scoring. Now, it's from limited plays. Played a couple of times. Like I say, if you like Marvel, get it. If you're not fussed by Marvel, I would get Fantasy Realms because I just think it's got slightly more interesting powers. But they're both, they're both good games and they both will have you doing lots of maths in your head. Okay, one of the slightly meatier games, and I just mentioned it previously about there was English rules available, is Oracalcum, or as my book says, Oracalc. Two to four players, 45 minutes from catch-up games, designed by Bruno Catala and Johannes Guppi. There's some kind of Atlantis theme here. I'm not too sure what the Atlantis theme is, because you each have your own island. So it's like four Atlantises, if you play with four people. And what you're going to do is each turn, there's going to be an offer of action cards with tiles associated with them. Now, there are four different types of actions. The action deck is 12 cards thick. There's three of each, and each of them comes with a one, two, or three size island slot on it. So you lay out the five action cards for the round, or depends on how many players you're playing with, and then you fill them with randomly drawn tiles of the correct size. And the tiles are going to show different types of terrain, and you're going to take the card, put the terrain onto your island map. They all come in slightly different shapes, the islands and there's easier and harder sizes. We'll see why it's particularly want to build in certain patterns in a second. And then you take one of the actions. Now, what are the actions? You can build. There are buildings available, small one-tile buildings, and they each have different powers or make you better at resource production. But they are all on a board which says this building can only be built on this particular terrain, which will affect what terrain tile you're drafting. There are five different terrains available in the game. Four of them are basic and one of them are volcanoes. One of the things you do is if you get a diamond of four different terrains together, then you can, as your build action, instead of building these little power buildings, you can build a temple. The temple will cover those four areas and then it will score you a point. And the whole game is a race to five points. So that's one of the reasons why manipulating what your terrain looks like is going to be important to you. Another way you can get a point is by building a medallion. Now you have to have five orichalcum to do this. It's, it's the metal, the special Atlantean metal. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's called that. Either unobtainium, vibranium, whatever it is. And where are you going to get that from? Well, two of the buildings are mines in which you can collect orichalcum and the other one is camps in which you're going to collect hoplites. And in fact, two of the actions are one is to collect from all the mines on your board. You start with one, so you'll be collecting orichalcum, available for various things, including building a medallion for a point. And another one is to collect hoplites from your camps. Again, you start with one and you can build more. Why do you want hoplites? Because the fourth action is to fight monsters. Whenever you draft a terrain tile that has got volcanoes on it, you will take a monster with it. The monster has got a combat symbol or strength that you're going to have to try and reach by rolling dice against it and adding hoplites when you take the fourth fight action. 
When you defeat a monster, you get a bonus for doing so, and it says on the monster standing what bonus you get. They get drawn randomly out of a bag whenever you get a volcano. Also, you cannot build any building in an area around a monster that has not been defeated. And as well as that, volcanoes become wild terrain for building upon once you've defeated the monster, meaning they can fit into that four-slot diamond for the temple, or you can build any of the buildings from display, because remember they're terrain-specific, onto a volcano spot. So do you want to boost your powers up? Do you want to score points where you can? The thing that they don't count for is the last way to score VP. There are four titans in the game, and they are linked to the four sort of basic terrains, if you like. If after you lay a tile, you have added to an area of three or more of the same terrain, and it's not as easy to do as you might think it is because you get very limited amount of terrain draws in this, it's hard. The shapes of the islands and the shapes of the tiles will make it more difficult than you'd hope. But if you do get three or more, you get to claim the Titan. What does claiming a Titan do? You can usually only hold one at once, or there are buildings that are laid to hold more. Claiming a Titan, it gives you a temporary victory point, which you can use to, as one of your five to win. Also gives you access to a one-off power, be it double your hoplite production when you produce hoplite, double your orichalcum production when you do that. It gives you an instant win in fighting, or it gives you a free build when you choose building. So they're very handy, but they're one-off and they flip over. If you add to an area of the same terrain, they'll flip back again and you get another use of their bonus power. Or... If someone else adds, now I could have an area of seven grassland. If Sean puts down a tile and gives himself a three or more big as it could be three, he will take the Titan off me. Titans are there to be used and abused and gone quickly. So make sure you've got a plan to use that action. Let me tell you, because someone taking it off you when you haven't used the action is a blow. Right. It's a 45-minute game. Genuinely is about 45 minutes long. It's got full Euro mechanisms in tile laying and terrain matching and resource management, but each one is simplified. So you're not spending ages. It's, it's not each goal is I'm doing this to do that to do this. Very quick. And yet each of those mechanisms interacts with the other mechanisms within the game in a simple way. It also is definitely a race in Oracle. The points will start to flow. You'll be like on one, on two, and then boom, 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 suddenly people are racing to five. One of the things I haven't mentioned is that there are extra actions available. On your turn, once, you can spend two hoplites to take any action apart from collect hoplites. You can spend two orichalcum to take any action apart from collect orichalcum. Or you can spend two monsters you've defeated to take any action as a bonus. They are really important, and timing them is really important. And giving yourself extra build actions, usually, is really important. And when you are able to use those resources, for example, if you use the Orichalcum, you think collecting five to score a point is easy. But then if you're spending them for extra actions, it's not so easy. If you use the Hoplites, whoever has most Hoplites goes first next turn. Last gets a bonus hoplite, which is weird and doesn't work very well two-player. In fact, the whole game doesn't work great two-player. We'll come back to that in two seconds. But having most hoplites is really handy because those actions get laid out, basically one more than the number of players, apart from two-player. And having first choice of them feels really, really important. So I don't particularly want to spend my hoplites in order to take extra actions. But that can be really, really important in this 45-minute game. Uh, why do I not think two-player works? I think that one player getting an extra hoplite every turn ramps up the economy too much too quickly. And the second thing is, 
when the first player takes an action card and tile, they discard an action card and tile, and it's too direct of an interaction. It's too mean. In that deck, I said there's three of each action card. If I take a build and throw away a build and stop you getting access to a build, that can be very important. If I do that and continue to do it, and you can't get access to a build for a certain amount of time, usually build, I mean, it could be fight if you've taken lots of monsters, but generally build, then you're just going to get so frustrated. And it's a race game and you shouldn't feel frustrated. You should feel like you're constantly moving towards victory, possibly just not as quick as someone else's. So I'd say it's much better three or four. The art direction got a lot of criticism from other players. So I think I'd better mention it. It looks like kind of a Clash of Kingdoms app where they're all sort of computer generated and stuff. It's got this weird Atlantean, faux Atlantean theme anyway, which I don't really know what's going on there. I didn't mind. I didn't notice the art direction. I didn't mind. I think everything was very clear. So I was quite happy with it, but people didn't like it. Okay, cool. I think it plays very nicely. I think the weird name and the art might hold it back a bit, but it shouldn't. One of the things that needs getting used to is that you are doing almost full, like, tactical thinking about, oh, what's this? What's that? I want one of them. I want these. I want these. And there's plenty to think about, but it's so quick. It just flies around place taking actions, which is an advantage for me but might take getting used to for certain players. But I would certainly recommend Orocalcum as a good choice and a possible sleeper hit coming out of Essen. Two more to go, and this one is a super quick one. It's Donkey Valley, three to seven players, 45 minutes, Jolly Dutch and Stefan Hendricks. This is one of the games I highlighted before the show as I was hoping it would pull together some magic to have a real sort of dicky funny pointy finger game it's where there's eight donkeys and the donkeys can take a certain amount of load and everyone has 10 load cards and during the course of eight rounds you're going to play eight loads face down use two special vowels which are available on the even numbers of your loads and you're going to be kind of betting on whether you think each donkey is going to be overloaded or not trying to read the other players and work out what's going down with the face down cards Trying to find the magic of a dicky game that makes people laugh and is not completely random is very difficult. And this is what Donkey Valley's gone for. What they've come down the side of is that it's actually, usually it becomes completely random. This is too controlled and too predictable. You can see what cards have already been played by players. So you're kind of on a countdown from there. The powers are all fixed even numbers, meaning that there are certain cards that are much less likely to get played than others. So once a player has played their two and their four, you know they're six, eight, ten. There's going to be the two of their powers are going to be out of those three. So it limits what they can do. And the game starts becoming much more predictable than it should be. There's also definitely a correct time to use certain powers. And when someone uses a certain power, it kind of gives away, well, you must have a low kind of card then if you're looking to swap scoring cards and things like that, which leaves a bit of predictability to it. it takes away the ability to surprise. Like people don't have that ability to sort of like go, ha ha. I got you all. You all thought I was doing that, but actually I was doing this. And that's worked out really well for me. So it didn't really all come together. I think the funniest bit of it was, if you correct right on it being overloaded, then all the cards get shoveled up and you get a random one. And that was about the loudest, funniest part of it. Because I you know, I played a one, but I ended up getting a nine load card. Because usually if it hadn't been overloaded, I'd get the one point. Playing low cards when it's not overloaded is kind of useless because you're getting low-value cards. So the scoring doesn't drive a lot of humour. It'd almost be funnier to 
to have ones worth more than something else or certain numbers cancel certain numbers out. I don't know. But the scoring was a bit too dry and the humour was a bit missing. So it ended up being a strange hybrid. It was fine. It, I mean, I'd play Donkey Valley again, but I wouldn't rush to. And it didn't quite pull off the trick. I was hoping that it would. Last game I'm going to lick is Joan of Arc, Audion Draw and Write. One to five players, 45 minutes from DLP and Ryan Hendrickson. It's steamed on Audion, whereby you start in the city and you move around a map and you collect certain goods and you're activating different types of workers for powers. It works similarly to Audion, only you're, you're drawing on a piece of paper. Certainly not as heavy, certainly not as deep, but it has got the DNA there. You are playing definitely an Audion game. From the bag, a set of worker tiles will get laid out and they're all different types of workers. You're going to draft one and you're going to activate it on your sheet. There are set actions for each type of worker. You can upgrade the actions by spending money and taking the upgradey person to give yourself more unique options. Every time that you upgrade something, it unlocks other builders for everyone else to upgrade. So there's sort of a, do you want to make the other things available for them? Although the draft thing, you know, whereby you can choose and you can deny things from other players, I like that. It works very well, but I'm a big fan of drafting anyway. What you can do with your actions is move around a map and you cross off goods as you move through them, either on roads or on rivers. They'll fill up your warehouse. Filling up lots of different types of goods will give you extra powers. Filling up lots of the same good will give you points at the end of the game. When you move through certain spots on the board, you then can take another action in order to build which are what's going to drive your actual most of your victory points as a multiplier because there's a, a knowledge track. You can collect books by taking various actions and drive up your knowledge track, get bonuses off there, and how far up on the knowledge track and how many buildings you build on your map is going to form the main part of your scoring, plus bonuses for doing lots of different things like collecting lots of money in the game, collecting goods, and what have you. It's like some of Audion, but it's definitely narrowed into the constraints of an and-right game. And in this case, the and right side of the board is not very open. Like in cartographers, you can draw those things anywhere. In here, you are ticking off certain boxes in a certain order in order to do certain things. You do stuff, you multiply some stuff, it engages you as this sort of Excel spreadsheet that you're doing by hand. Just a spreadsheet then, wouldn't it? Why would I say Excel? This spreadsheet that you're doing by hand for 40 minutes and then it's gone. And it couldn't have gone any longer than that because there's just not enough in it to do that. For that 40 minutes, it's perfectly engaging. It's well-made. It's evocative of the original game all on. It's a nice puzzle. I would play it again, but I have no need to play it again. And I would say Joan of Arc, all on draw and write is competent. It is what you would expect of a draw and write based on all on with not enough surprises to really elevate it into the special group. Okay, that's my thoughts on Essen 2022 and a few of the games we have played since then. We'll be back shortly in some form. If we can get enough games in, it'll be reviews. Otherwise, we've still got our top 100 to count down. Sean's got some kind of idea for an episode tinkering around in his head, so it might be a surprise. So basically, I don't know what's coming next. While you're waiting... And missing us, head to dicetower.com for loads of amazing gaming content. Thank you very much for listening. Music by E. Aaron.
Spiel, Bo. <lacht>